My name is Chris Hay. I'm one of your pastors here at Cornerstone. And I've waited a long time to be able to say that. (sighs) We are in the middle of a series called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Two weeks ago, Todd... Uh, Todd showed us the beginning, a perfect, idyllic place without sin. It was a wonderful world, as Terry shared with us last week. Um, And then Terry took us down into the conflict. Uh, Sin entered into this wonderful world and pretty much ruined it. Today we're going to continue the story as it unfolds throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This is the middle of the story. We've already seen things that have preceded it, and there's two more weeks, things following it. So today is the middle. Now, Terry left us in an awful mess last week, and I I think it has something to do with naked. Um, I kind of missed that point, but there's a connection there somehow. Uh, But anyway, sin has invaded the entirety of of creation. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, which was a special place of communion with God. They were driven out of there. Uh, There was this massive flood where God judged the entire world and killed uh, all people except for Noah and his family. And then God judged the diabolical schemes of man when they tried to come together at the Tower of Babel and he confused their languages. And so, so God is stepping into this mess uh, he, he wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught off guard. He didn't scratch his head and go, oh no, what am I going to do now? This is awful. He is and was completely in control. And so God is now going to create a nation. He's going to create a people and he's going to reveal himself to that people, to that nation, so that they can take the, the good news about him to the rest of the world. We call it a display people. Uh, They were a people that would know God, know Him well, and then could share Him with everyone else. So let's jump in. I'm going to tell you the story of that nation today. It's a story full of intrigue and full of mystery. Kings and queens, romance, but there's also darkness and there's murder. And in this story, we have the pinnacle of peace and prosperity in the kingdom, And we have a descent into debauchery that's unimaginable. It's Camelot at its finest, and it's it's Dante's Inferno at its worst. But it's our story. It's our heritage. We follow in this line of this nation. We come along. But more than that, it's God's story. It's the story of how he has been working among us humans since creation. It's the story of how he has always wanted a people to display his glory. It's a true story. So buckle up, hang on, because we are going to be doing a stratospheric flyover of the entire Old Testament in the next 35 minutes. Uh, We are going to occasionally drop into the text and take a look at a verse or two, and we start in Genesis 12. So, are you ready? Seatbelts on? Oxygen masks uh, attached. Uh, Let's go. The first text we're going to look at is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And these texts that we look at, I'm going to put them up here in the screen. Uh, It's going to be really hard to follow along, but go ahead and try. Um, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a promise to Abraham. He starts out uh, to, to create this display nation with a man named Abraham. It's about 2000 B.C. He got, he, God makes a promise to this man Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant or this promise is going to take us through the next 2,000 years all the way up to the time of Jesus. And in fact, it takes us all the way up to today. We're going to trace that promise through the Old Testament. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham would become this great nation. He even said that, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. God says that through Abraham, everyone on the earth, every person will experience blessing through Abraham and this nation that comes from him. That's you and me. We are blessed through this nation that God was creating. Now let's get perspective here. Abraham was 75 years old. He had no kids, and he had no idea what in the world this promise was about. But what's amazing here is he believed God. He believed God. It made no sense. He was way past childbearing years, and so was his wife. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation? Let's just stop for a second. You know, that is all that God ever asks of us is to believe him when we don't understand. Believe him when it makes no sense. And obey. Do what he asks us to do when it seems foolish. At age 75, Abe left everything that he knew, his familiar country, the place he had grown up, relatives and family. He left this place and he went he didn't know where. God said, just start going, and I'll show you your destination as you go. Is that faith? Is that belief? Theoretically, if Abraham had not done that, we wouldn't be here today. Because of this man's belief, he obeyed. He went. And let me just challenge us. Are we willing to obey when it doesn't make sense? Has God ever asked you to do something that made no sense whatsoever? I hope so. And I hope you obeyed. Sometimes we'll understand why and sometimes we still don't get it. We keep going. So Abe lives another hundred years and he dies with two sons. Each of his two sons had a couple of kids. Nothing even close to a great nation. But one of his grandsons was named Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. Hint, hint. This, this man Jacob has 12 sons. A little better, but still, this isn't a nation. Uh, the book of Genesis closes with this promised nation numbering a mere 70 people. Now a couple hundred years have passed since God promised Abe that he would make him a great nation. Through a series of events, these 70 people end up in Egypt, which is not the land that God promised to give them. 400 years go by, and now this people are numerous, but they're slaves. They are completely enslaved in the land of Egypt. So God picks another man named Moses. And God asks Moses 
to do some amazing things, just like he asked Abraham to do, and to lead this, excuse me, to lead this ragtag group of slaves out of Egypt. God gives them a law code. He gives them a constitution. He gives them a complete system of how they were to worship and relate to God. These laws that he gave them were intended to reflect his character and his original intent of how man was supposed to live. Some of the laws in the Old Testament seem pretty bizarre. But let me just say this. They were all designed to make Israel special and unique so that the rest of the world would see God in them and through them. They were becoming a nation now. A nation called Israel. Now a key part of the worship system that God gave Israel was how to deal with sin. How to deal with the effects of the fall. There were a lot of animal sacrifices. A lot of blood was shed in this religious system. And so we learn that sacrifice is necessary to come into the presence of God. It requires death. It requires blood. But this worship system that God gave to this young nation was only a temporary measure. These animal sacrifices could not forgive sin could not wipe out sin. They could only push off the penalty. They could only delay it. They could only push it forward. So these sacrifices hinted at the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, the promise of the entire world being blessed through the nation of Israel, the promise that someone was coming or something was coming that could be the final sacrifice once and for all. Just a hint. Just a hint at what's coming. So this, uh, these people leave the bondage of Egypt and God quickly brings them to the borders of their new place, their new homeland. This was the place. Eden didn't work out. Eden was a special place, but they blew it. Uh, It didn't work out. Adam and Eve were driven out. And so God now brings this young nation to a new place. It's what we know as Israel or Palestine today. But this group of, uh, this young nation refused to believe that God could give it to them. And as punishment, they had to wander around aimlessly for 40 years, waiting for every member of that generation to die off. God was purging them. God was preparing them. God was getting rid of the old, unbelieving generation. He was bringing in a new thing. He was forming them into a nation, shaping them so they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. That was his plan. That was his intent. Moses dies and God chooses another man, Joshua, to lead them into their new land. They numbered maybe a million now. Sounds more like a nation. God's promise to Abraham is looking better. This is happening. This is being fulfilled. Joshua was to lead them in conquering their new land. But it was a slow process. It took some 20 years for them to move into the land, uh, get rid of the people that were there, and take over. Look at this verse in Exodus 23. I will not drive them out from you in one year, lest the land become desolate, And the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased 
and possess the land. Now let's stop here for a minute. I want you to notice something about how God works. God is a God of process. He works via process. At this point in the story, uh, we have moved 600 years from Abraham's promise. They spent 400 years in slavery. It took 40 years of wandering around aimlessly. It took 20 years to fully take the land. Couldn't God have done this more quickly? Couldn't he have just said, poof, you're a nation, go in, the land is yours, done. But it took, at this point, it's taken 600 years. Are you waiting for something in your life right now? I remember when our uh, first child, our daughter, was born, it felt like 600 years of waiting uh, as dawn was in labor. It was only 72 hours. <clears throat> yeah. It felt like 600 years. Isaiah 64 says that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. God is a God of process. We have all waited for things to happen. And some of those things haven't happened yet. We've waited for an unbelieving loved one or friend or relative to come to Christ and it hasn't happened yet. We wait and we wait and we wait. Seems like all we ever do is wait. Remember this and know this about God. He's a God of process. We can understand some of the reasons why he's forming character. He's knocking off some of those rough edges. We're not ready yet for that particular thing to happen. Other things need to take place before this can take place. But we don't know all of what God's doing. All we know is we wait for him. God is a God of process. So, here we are. You would think things would be good, right? They're finally in the land. They have a place. They have God's revealed word. They understand the worship system that he's instituting. They have their mission. They are to reveal God to the rest of the world. God has created this nation of Israel, this display people. He has revealed himself to them so that they can go out and tell the rest of the world uh, about what, he, what he's like and who he is. So all is well. All is good, right? No. This horrible thing called sin continues to rear its ugly head. It's seeking to destroy the promise at every turn. Now this chosen nation, this people blessed by God, this people to whom God revealed himself in a special way, descend into 350 years of sin and idolatry and anarchy, completely failing in the task of being a blessing. This is what we might call the dark ages of Israel. They had a few dark ages, but this is one of them. Uh, it's recorded in the book of Judges. And it's one of the deepest, darkest times in Israel's history. 
Uh, Judges 21-25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the last verse of the book, which summarizes well what was happening. People determined their own morality. They said, what is right for me is right for me. Huh, does that sound familiar? 3,500 years later, we're still subject to the same error. And God was also revealing to Israel the need for a king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. All right, I got to have a spoiler alert here. If you really want to wait till next week and find out how this story unfolds, you need to plug your ears right now. Okay, plugged? Here is a hint that the fulfillment of the promise might have something to do with a king. All right, you can unplug your ears now. So, more stuff happens, life goes on, and Israel gets a king. Here we go. Relief, help. The monarchy is established. Things are going to get better. We can get our act together now and we can tell the rest of the world about the one true God. Except Israel wanted a king for the wrong reasons. Look at 1 Samuel 8 up here on the screen. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Did you get that? That we also may be like all the other nations. Now wait a minute. Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be unique. God called this nation out, made his promises to them, promised to make them a great nation so they would be different, so they would be unique, so they would be a holy people, so they could be a blessing to the rest of the world by displaying God's promises to that world. But they wanted to be like the other nations. No, no. They're missing the point. Sounds like Corinthians, huh? They're missing the point. We as the church have the same mission as Israel. We are to be different and unique so that we can display God's glory. His his name needs to be proclaimed to the world and God has given the church His presence, His his word, his truth, his Holy Spirit. So that we can do the same thing that Israel was supposed to do. And it defeats our God-given purpose and it defeats our God-given mission when we want to be just like the world to whom we're supposed to display his glory. Let's not miss the point. As we've just come through in the last year, the church at Corinth continued to miss the point. Let's not let the church in Simi Valley miss the point. Israel missed it so bad. So the second king of Israel was a man named David. And God made some amazing promises to David. Uh, We call these promises the Davidic covenant. This is a covenant that God made with his people Israel, now through the king David. Uh, One of the most amazing is in 2 Samuel 7, up here in the screen. 
And your house, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised David that there would be a king on the throne of Israel forever, a king directly descended from David. Now think about that. Here's David, this man, and God says, I am going to put a king who is descended from you on this throne forever. What what would David have thought? How could he have imagined this? I mean, I'm sure he would have been thrilled because, okay, one of my descendants will rule forever, but remember when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem? Why did they go to Bethlehem? I heard a lot of... (laughs) They were of the house and the lineage of David. Jesus was a direct, biological, physical descendant of David. Another spoiler alert. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise right here to David. He is the king who will rule forever on the throne. But that's for next week, and I'm getting ahead of myself, so pretend you didn't hear that, and let's keep going. David dies. More kings come along. Sin rears its ugly head continuously. These kings were clearly not the fulfillment of the promise. These kings split the kingdom into two civil war, uh, warring factions. They turned their backs on God. They brought in all kinds of idol worship. They instituted pagan practices. They even sacrificed their children to pagan gods. They, 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 they engaged in horrific, idolatrous practices that were, were light years away from worshiping the one true God. They were trying to be just like the other nations. And in fact, instead of being a display people to to display the glory of God to the nations, they even went further than the other nations in some of their pagan practices. There were pagans who looked at them and said, we wouldn't even do that. Now, just by the way, there were some good kings along the way. But as a whole, Israel was going down this this long descent of disobedience and idolatry. So God sends prophets. These were men who warned them of the consequences if they continue rejecting God. We know some of these prophets. Think of men like Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Joel and Hosea and Elijah and Elisha. These prophets not only warned Israel of the ruin that awaited them if they continued their idolatry. Point well taken. There is ruin waiting, awaiting those who do not worship the one true God, but, but continue to pursue idolatrous practices. There is ruin awaiting you if you're one of those. They also, they didn't just warn, they also pointed ahead to the coming fulfillment of the promise. I encourage you to pick up the next segment of the Advent devotionals because in those there's a lot of references to these prophets and how they're pointing ahead to the coming king, to the, to the fulfillment of the promise. 
But the prophets couldn't turn the people back. The people rejected the prophets. They rejected God. They continued on their long slide into sin and depravity. And finally, it got so bad. It's as if God said, I have had enough. I am so fed up. You you are so clearly not turning back to me that God sent into the land of Israel, His promised land, this place that was supposed to be a place of blessing. He sent into that land two different foreign world powers who destroyed them. Thousands of these Israelites were murdered. Thousands more were carried off into exile. The land was pillaged. Jerusalem as the holy city was burned and sacked and destroyed. The temple was gutted and burned and destroyed. This was the place where God was supposed to, where God's people were supposed to display His glory. And it was destroyed. God had repeatedly told his people that he would bless them if they obeyed and he would curse them if they disobeyed. He told them repeatedly, if you repent, I'll restore you. But they continued to disobey, refused to to repent, descended deeper and deeper into idolatry and debauchery, and finally God said, enough. Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11 records one of the most depressing, dark events in Israel's history. An event that's almost unimaginable for those of us today. It's where God completely removes His presence from Israel. For eight or nine hundred years, God has localized His presence in the most holy place of the tabernacle and in the temple. God, God has has dwelt there. And now he leaves. He leaves. Can we even grasp the gravity that God is no longer with his people? He is gone. He has left them. This leaving takes place five years before the final destruction of Jerusalem. So for these last five years of Israel's history, they were on their own without God to intervene. So now what? Half of Israel is gone never to return. The other half is gone, but after 70 years, some of them do return and they make some feeble attempts to rebuild the temple. Pretty lame. The old-timers who remembered the previous temple wept on the day of dedication because the new temple was just so feeble. Everything is broken. God's heart is broken. He has loved this people. He has been patient with this people. He has demonstrated patience and long-suffering that's beyond the norm. But they have rejected Him over and over and over and over again. It's a mess. What can fix this? Who can fix this? What happened to the promise? Can you imagine living during this period of time as a person who knew the Scriptures? You knew the promises. You knew the covenants. You knew what God had said. 
you would have to think that God had reneged on his word. Because year after year after decade after decade passes with nothing. No word. No hope. It's empty. It's dark. It's hopeless. There is a period from the end of the Old Testament until the New Testament opens of 400 years where we have no scripture. There's no prophets. God doesn't speak that we have recorded. He doesn't reveal anything new. It's like he's just waiting. 400 years. And we get so irritated when it takes 15 seconds to download our email instead of 5 seconds to download our email. 400 years of silence. But even as the Old Testament closes, even as God shuts the door on His revelation, there are hints. There are these tiny glimmers of hope. Uh, Look at this verse in Malachi 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And he says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is undoubtedly a reference to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. The Davidic king, the perfect lamb, the solution to this tragic state of affairs. Even in the last book of the Old Testament, even as his revelation closes, even as he goes silent for 400 years, he offers us this glimpse, this hint, that there's a messenger coming who will prepare the way And when the New Testament opens, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. God was completely in control. He knew exactly what had to take place. He had perfect timing. He knew exactly when to reveal the Messiah. Galatians 4.4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, In other words, when God knew all the pieces were in place, when everything was set as it should be, in that time God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And I might add, He knows exactly the perfect timing for those things in our lives for which we have been waiting and waiting and waiting. So this chapter of the greatest story ends. This is very unsatisfying. You should feel a little sense of tension. You should feel a little lack of resolution. Those of you, at least those of you that plug your ears during the spoiler alerts, you should feel that tension. Because how is this going to end? What's going to happen? But there's two more chapters to the story. Next week and the week after. Don't miss those. So let me wrap up with this. A few thoughts. God made some promises to Abraham. Some of those have been fulfilled and some of those have not yet been fully fulfilled. God made some promises to David. Some of those have been fulfilled and some have not yet been fully fulfilled. But the coming to earth, the coming of Jesus to earth as the God-man is the pinnacle of the promise. 
We'll learn that next week. It'll be expanded next week. But I would be remiss if I did not make it abundantly clear this morning that Jesus is the solution. He is the answer to this mess. He is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus, period. Forget all the other stuff. It's about Jesus. Israel failed miserably as a nation. Miserably. And God abandoned them. God left them. I don't believe forever, but for a really, really long time. Dawn was reading my sermon notes this week, uh, as she always does and always helps me think through from a different perspective. And she got to this point, and she looked at me, and she's in tears. She says, I don't like how God abandoned his people. What if he decides to abandon me? I don't want to keep on living if he leaves me. And we should feel that way. But rest assured, God never abandons those who seek hard after him. He abandons those who reject Jesus as the only Lord and Savior. There's a little-known prophet in the Old Testament named Azariah. And in 2 Chronicles 15, he said this, If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That's hard. That's hard. Even in the darkest days, even when he removed his presence from the temple, even when foreign armies pillaged and destroyed and burned, even then, God was with those few who still followed him. And there were some. All along the way, there were some. There were some good kings, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah. And and, in the little book of Ruth, probably most of us are familiar with the story of Ruth. That story takes place during those dark ages recorded in the book of Judges. And I believe it's there to demonstrate that here in the midst of one of the darkest periods of Israel's history, here is belief, here is love, here is faith, here is trust, here is light. So it doesn't matter how dark the days get. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing or the rest of the church is doing. We can follow hard after Jesus. And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Following Jesus is a journey. It's a process. God sometimes seems to take so long to do what we think we want him to do. But we just need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Follow hard after him. And remember, we will never, ever walk alone. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Oh, the story of Israel is so depressing and so discouraging and so difficult. But Lord, there's so many lessons there for us to learn. And I pray today that you would reassure us that for those of us who know the name of Jesus, you never leave us. You do not abandon us. And Lord, those that are here this morning that may not know the name of Jesus, may they feel the fear May they feel the reality of being separated from God for all eternity. And Lord, may you impress upon their hearts the need to place their faith in Jesus alone. Lord, may we fix our eyes on Jesus this Christmas season. We pray in your name. Amen.